0: The following podcast episode was discovered beneath the foundations of an abandoned house in the Blue Mountains. Police identified the voices as those of missing amateur film critics Harley Lewis, Jean Lewis, and Lawson Keeney. The recording has been reconstructed as best as scientifically possible. Listeners are advised that the content found within is distressing and unexplainable, so discretion is recommended.
1: I just want to apologise to Harley and John's mum and my mum And I'm sorry to everyone I I was very naive. I am so so sorry for everything that has happened. Because in spite of what the twins say now it is my fault. Because it was my list and I insisted I insisted on everything I I insisted that we keep recording. I insisted that we keep watching these movies. I I insisted that we do an episode on the Blair Witch Project. Everything had to be my way, and this is where we've ended up. And it's all because of me that we're here now, hungry, cold, and hunted. I love you, Mum. I'm so sorry. What is that? I'm scared to close my eyes. I'm scared to open them. We're going to die out here.
2: Hello, my name is Holly Lewis.
0: I'm Lawson Kini. And I'm jean Lewis
2: and welcome to I Don't Know Why We're Doing This, but we stick to the list for better or worse. This week, we're finally out of franchise territory. Uh, We're no longer watching three movies a week for the deep dive. Uh, This time, we've watched the seminal work of found footage horror fiction, The Blair Witch Project. Well,
0: you say that we're out of franchise territory, Harley, but I'm moving into those Pokemon movies in a couple of weeks. I'll be watching 21 animated Pokemon movies in a row, so... Pray for me.
2: Yeah. Anyway, so before we get into talking about The Blair Witch Project, we'll talk about what we have seen within the week. Lawson, why don't you start us off?
0: Sure thing. I saw this week to start off with Run, Lola, Run. It is a German-language experimental thriller directed by Tom Tyqua It is about a young woman named Lola, played by Franca Potente. She gets a call from her crook boyfriend, Manny, played by Maurice Bleedtro. He's been doing a job for this crime boss but it's gone wrong. He's lost the money that he was supposed to deliver and so he has 20 minutes before he is going to uh meet this crime boss uh and he needs to give the money to the guy then or he'll be killed. And so Lola has 20 minutes to come up with I think I think the amount is something like $200,000 and Lola as is suggested by the title runs and Tries to figure this out. This is cool, stylish, and conceptually very interesting. It's sort of played with split timelines, so you see the same thing happen three times, except she makes different yeah. choices each time.
3: Sort of like the *Pulp Fiction* thing.
0: No, 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 no it's, split
2: timelines.
0: It's it's a different timelines. It's not um it's not the same timeline cutting and following different people it's like she runs fails and then the movie starts over again and she makes a different decision
3: oh that's cool i i do like that when movies do that that's fine
0: so it's all really affected by her speed out of the gate what happens to her on the way down the staircase of her apartment building whether she trips and falls or not whether she gets diverted by an angry dog that's barking at her Like, little things that cost her a second or a fraction of a second that then change the things that she encounters later on in her running that alter the outcome. That's fun. And that prompts these really radical differences in the way that things play out. It's all about chance and fate. She bumps into these people on her journey, and the fact that she is bumping into them in a different state and at a different speed and at a different exact time in each go-through seems to affect their lives in profound ways. Like, you will stop when she does that and see flashes of the person's life. Like, just a little brief, like, 10-second flashes of what this person's life like. So there's... Uh, she bumps into this woman, and in one go-through that she bumps into... Uh, she delays the woman long enough that when she gets to the convenience store to buy the lottery ticket, the lottery ticket that she gets is the winning lottery ticket. She wins millions of dollars. Things like that. Uh, yeah. She bumps into another guy, delays him long enough that he gets beat up by thugs on the street, but meets his future wife, who is the nurse in the hospital that he's treated at.
3: So, So it's that whole... Like, cause and effect thing of everything that you do will have an effect on... A butterfly
0: flaps its wings and a hurricane across the world starts, you know, that kind of thing.
3: That's cool. So
0: it's exploring that and it's exploring all of those ideas of chance and fate. So it's doing that around the edges, but it's also doing that, obviously, and much more in-depth with the main storyline. Explores all these different parts of Lola and her relationships with people. You see more... Sides of her relationships, depending on how she interacts with different people in each go through, it seems to be hinting at something a little bit cosmic that this is, this is not just a conceptual thing, that this is something that's actually happening to her. Like she appears, it's never explicitly stated, but she appears to be remembering certain things from each go through and changing her behavior accordingly. But it's pulpy and it's stylish. There's a lot of techno music in it. It's thrilling. It, it, it mounts pretty effective tension. And the acting is strong, particularly patente and Bleed Trow. But you've got a guy named Herbert Norp as Lola's father, who is very severe and unforgiving. And he has a pretty fascinating role in events that the actor pulls off pretty well. This is a, a compelling cult indie film. I next watch, South Park, Bigger, Longer and Uncut. It is an animated musical comedy directed by Trey Parker. It is, of course, based on the TV show, and it follows the South Park kids, Eric Cartman and Stan Marsh, both played by Trey Parker, Kyle Broflovski and Kenny McCormack, both played by Matt Stone. They see an R-rated Canadian movie, which is filled with filthy language, and so they start repeating that language, which prompts this outraged reaction by the parents of South Park. They form an advocacy group that gets taken to ridiculous extremities like things in South Park always get taken to. It creates a diplomatic incident prompting America to go to war with Canada. Uh, This fulfills apparently an ancient prophecy, which allows Satan, also played by Parker, and his abusive lover, Saddam Hussein, also played by Stone, to take over the earth and rule it. This is funny, and it's biting, but it lacks the crucial element of the show's specialness, which is in its immediacy in commenting on current events.
3: Yeah, because their turnaround is incre-
0: incredibly quick. It's eight quick. days yeah. from when they start actually putting writing it, and then when it airs.
3: Well, not it's... recently, because I don't know if they are the... I think they've taken hiatus. There's a...
0: Well, yeah, they're not releasing episodes to... at the moment.
2: In the more recent seasons, there's a lot of serialised
0: storytelling. Yeah, but it's still done on that short thing. Like, that was the thing with um, with one of those series, was uh, they had Hillary Clinton in it as a character, mm. and their Trump stand-in was one of their regular characters. So yeah. they had written the episode that was going to air a couple of days after Election Day in 2016, with Hillary Clinton winning. So they had to, at the very last minute, go in and change things when Trump won. Yeah. So they're still going right to the line, even even twenty two seasons in or whatever they're at now. The target here is is concerned parents. You, one gets the impression the kind of concerned parents who are very concerned about South Park. Yeah. Conservative TV watchdogs, people like that, are uh, ridiculed in this. It takes shots at the MPAA. There was it. There was a. There's a story behind the scenes that, I mean, the title was originally supposed to be, uh, the title was originally supposed to be South Park, All Hell Breaks Loose. And Trey Parker and Matt Stone claim that the MPAA forced uh, them to change the title to remove the word hell. So instead they called it South Park, Bigger, Longer and Uncut which is undoubtedly, undoubtedly the the more explicit of the two titles.
3: Yeah.
0: Uh, there is also... They're, they're clearly reveling in the fact that they're able to use swear words, that they don't have to be yeah. bleeped because they're on basic cable. This movie has apparently 399 swear words in it because the MPAA, that is their limit. If you get to 400, it's an NC-17. So that's specifically why that number is there. It's taking shots at all of this stuff and you, you get the you get the standard South Park thing of the increasingly ridiculous escalation of events yeah. that things are just taken to the most absurd of streams and, and, and that's amusing. But it's a parody of Disney musicals as well. There's lots of songs in it. There's pretty fun songs. You have got a great uh Les miserables style number where everyone's yeah. singing over Not the top resistance. of each other. You've got Blame Canada, where all these outraged parents sing about how they've, they've got to blame Canada for their children's problems because otherwise people might think it's their fault. That was actually nominated for the Academy Award for Best Original Song, making South Park, Bigger, Longer and Uncut, an Oscar-nominated film. Uh of course, this is Trey Parker and Matt Stone. These are the Book of Mormon guys. I mean, that was still to come. Yeah. So so they have interest in this stuff. But it, as I said, it lacks the topical immediacy of the TV show. The commentary is more generic as a result, considering the yeah. format. They can't talk about what happened last week like they can on the show. It's got to be a little more broad and unspecific. Yeah. And that is a problem for South Park because South Park always gets its best moments out of the particularly vicious shots at whatever's in the news. It's a stretch for this story to be wound out the way that it is. It's it's an 80-minute film, and, and Parker and Stone are used to telling 22-minute stories, so it, it's clearly not in their wheelhouse to write a film like this, and the pacing suffers a little bit. They're working it out. But you get typically great voice acting. George Clooney has a has a cameo in it as an inept surgeon, like parodying his ER character who yeah. kills Kenny. He
3: also I think in one of the earlier seasons he did a cameo as the voice of a dog. one of the kids' dogs. Yes, he yeah. just woofs. Um Yeah. Which is hilarious. Like
0: he, he was apparently kind of in a strange way responsible for South Park getting on the air. Because there was that proof-of-concept uh, short film that was going around that he thought was hilarious, passed it to a producer friend that actually ended up getting it made at Comedy Central. So he's sort of part of the story of South Park. And I'd have to double-check this, but I seem to remember the story about that dog thing being that Comedy Central was pushing for, like, celebrity guest stars. So their answer was to get George Clooney to woof three times into a microphone. (laughs) (laughs) and just have that be it. But I mean, it's technically him. hmm. There's no attempt to spruce up the animation from the show, which is the right call. South Park looks shitty intentionally, and that's very fun. Uh, it, it, It would be strange if they did anything else. They do try some CG elements in the sequences in Hell, those yeah. are jarring. They don't fit with the the sort of cookie cutter nature of the rest of the animation, and they haven't aged very well either. I'm not sure this was really necessary uh, to be made. I'm not sure that that South Park the movie was particularly gasping for another for a theatrical release so soon after the series started. This was 1999. The series started in I think 97, so this was a quick yeah. turnaround. But it is fun for what it is. And I do love the fact that something South Park has been nominated for an Oscar. They yeah. they have said that they have thoughts about doing another movie, but they suspect that if they ever do another movie it will serve as the finale for South Park.
3: Yeah. And they have they've done sort of movie length things, but those have been narratives for the games. That yeah. they made. And
0: then there's stuff like um like Imagination Land which was, it is movie-length and has been released as its own like standalone DVD, but it's, it's, it's like three or four episodes uh, yeah. of the show stitched together, a multi-part story.
3: I do like the music in this movie. I think the songs are probably the best thing about it, specifically the song Up There, which has such a fun energy to it. You know what I
0: was surprised and kind of disappointed by that? They didn't bring Mr. Hanky in. Mr Hanky the Christmas Pooh. Yeah. yeah. I I'm not normally Lady I'm not normally one for gutter humour, but I do really like that character, specific like his, his high pitched squeak and the the sheer horror that all of the adults react with whenever he yeah. turns up. There's there's one in the, the games where you've gotta find all of his children in the sewers, yeah, he's got yeah, a yeah, drunk wife. He's like you know <laughs> yeah.
3: I f- she throws bottles at him.
0: Yeah, and then then he's, like, having a domestic in front of the, the player character, and he's like, um...
1: What do you mean, where are the kids? You're supposed to be watching them out back, Autumn. No!
0: They were being watched by the babysitter! The babysitter quit four months ago when you threw
1: up on her! Don't you fucking yell at me! Don't excuse us a minute! Don't you ever embarrass me by the stranger like Daddy? You talk on him and you don't know where you can't you you Your kids told you, piece of shit. Oh, fuck you, no, you, you
3: I'll yeah. no, fuck you. Fuck you. <laughs> yeah, I-, I liked the game. Um, What about Towley? What do you think of Towley? I like his slow descent into sort of absurd addiction.
0: Mm. Well, I, I of course, watched The Blair Witch Project, but that means I also watched the other two Blair Witch movies, starting with Book of Shadows, Blair Witch 2, which instantaneously pisses me off because of the way that they've structured the title. should be Blair Witch Mm -hmm. 2, Book of Shadows, but, you know, I have to pick my battles. It's a horror film directed by Joe Berlinger. He is mainly a documentary filmmaker. He made a trilogy of documentaries about, I think they're the Memphis Three that they're called.
3: Yeah, the poet I slot. Yes.
0: But he is also the director of Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil and Vile, the Zach Efron Ted Bundy movie yeah. from last year. Which I really like. This is a meta film. It's set in a real town, in ostensibly the real world, after the Blair Witch Project has come to theatres. Uh, that a whole bunch of movie fans keep coming to this town that was featured in the Blair Witch Project and going to the hills to hang out where the, the stuff was filmed. And a collection of young people, Jeffrey Donovan is the most recognisable name here, go out into the woods to sort of go on a Blair Witch tour. And you get these old house ruins that are ruins from the film where the where the house in the film was supposed to be, and they camp there for the night. And everyone blacks out. They wake up and they've lost time. And so they retreat to a house in the woods that is owned by one of the characters to review the tapes that they have recorded from that period. Uh, And, of course, creepy shit starts to happen. This is better than its reputation suggests, but it is wildly different from the first film. This is not found footage. This is a very quick turnaround as well. The first movie came out in 99. This came out in 2000. It is hallucinatory horror people wondering if what they see is real, apparitions appearing and disappearing. It's that kind of stuff. There is stuff hidden in the videos that they're watching, like little bits of of information that they enhance, that they rewind and they, they see things that they couldn't see before, stuff like that. It's a generally competent cast and they bounce off of each other okay. You get a decent dynamic there, but the dialogue is really cheesy. Mm. It's nothing groundbreaking. It's in search of a point, really. Uh it's not really going in much directions and, and I don't know why it's called Book of Shadows. There is no Book of Shadows yeah. in it. Um,
2: apparently and this is just what I've heard, apparently it was really butchered in the edit. Um that, that... has that's the yeah. general idea of what went down, that it was actually meant to be a much more surreal yes
0: well experience on that note it it frequently cuts away to to random like three second shots of violence of people being butchered of knives yeah. going to stomachs and things and gore and throats being, being split big slip the director didn't want that he was he was no. forced into it by the studio it does kind of work within the narrative once you find out what those scenes actually are but it, it's it's not something that the director wanted in the film, and it certainly does seem to interrupt the tone that he is trying to achieve. It has a few decently creepy ideas, and like the first film, it remains ambiguous as to what the threat actually is. Is this actually supernatural, or is this something much more human? the house location that they're all hanging out in is cool it is an old warehouse that has been repurposed into a house so it has all these different levels and stories to it, it has a bridge leading to it over a, over a, a a gully a ditch sort of thing
3: spooky backwards walking children
0: mm-hmm. yeah very 2000s era licensed music
3: it has oh you can always tell you can always tell
0: it has kind of a goofy tone too that might be intentional but also might not be there are a few lines that are clearly intended to be laughs but as the movie goes on and the characters are in more and more serious situations i start to think that i'm not supposed to be laughing when i'm laughing Mm. in any case i was entertained it is not nearly as bad as all that as people make it out to be. It's available for streaming on Amazon if anyone's interested and they have an Amazon Prime subscription. Of course, I next watch Blair Witch. It's directed by Adam Wingard. It takes place 20 years after the first film. Heather's brother James, played by James Alan McCune, uh, discovers a ghostly video on the internet that appears to show his sister. his sister in the video. Uh, who, of course, disappeared 20 years earlier in the woods. This video is found in the woods. And so he he tracks out into the woods with his friends Peter, played by Brandon Scott, Ashley, played by Corbin Reed, and Lisa, played by Callie Hernandez. Lisa is doing a university documentary on this whole expedition as well. She's turning it into university credit. Well, of course, creepy shit starts to happen, as it always does. I love this. It frightened me more than any movie recently has. Uh, More than the first Blair Witch Project did. It's found footage again. It's using new tech like drones. You get these aerial shots that are interesting. You have these new earpiece uh, video cameras that... It's just like latched on over the person's ear, so they they don't have to carry this camera. And you're really seeing their POV. It's it's all faked because while those cameras do exist, they look terrible, and so yeah. it, it, it's all done with like proper professional cameras. Uh,
2: but you can get past that. But you can because you just want it to look decent.
0: It goes a little further into the backstory of the Blair Witch. It pulls in some of the extra stuff that they did in the document in the mockumentary material around the the period of the first film's release. The Heather connection is a little bit clunky, but it works. Uh, it gives our characters motivation and it gets them into the woods. It gives us a link to the first film in an interesting way. The characters are interesting enough. James and Lisa are the most interesting. They they seem to have sort of a thing going, uh, an unresolved sexual tension going on under the surface. Uh, that they're trying to deal with. The others don't really get much focus, though. There's creeping dread over the first half. It's it's not as effective as the first in the way that it slowly mounts the tension, but it is effective. The second half takes place entirely at night. I'm pretty sure it takes place in something approaching real time. Uh, it is unrelenting. That's the thing about the first Blair Witch Project, is you know that once it goes into the daytime... That you're safe. That nothing, nothing bad's going to happen until nighttime comes again. But they, that the second half of of Blair Witch is now set at nighttime, so you don't get that safety at all. Time
2: also doesn't work.
0: Properly. No, it goes into these these big cosmic sort of ideas of,
2: and I love this it.
0: this Bermuda Triangle sort of area that they're in in it's- the woods.
2: It's not even time-shattering, it's time-melting, mm. in a way. Which, you get
3: hints of that in Blair Witch Project.
2: Yeah, I'd really like... And I don't know if this was the in, the... in Blair Witch, this sequel movie, you hear, in the woods, audio from the first movie, mm. don't you? I think um, so. I would have I also liked to be able to hear in the distance that search party that went out to coffin rock
0: yeah that would have been fun hmm. but yeah
3: they... and I love the way that they do the house at the end it's just glorious how you walk into a room but you're into the in the woods again like all of that mind trippy shit i I've always loved that kind of filmmaking I remember them doing it a lot in Everyman hybrid.
2: They do that a lot in grave encounters as well.
3: Yeah, and, and specifically when it's done in a first person perspective in the found footage thing, it's always very neat. Yeah,
0: you get those sort of supernatural phenomenon growing more and more violent over the course of the film. It's yeah. much more. It's much larger in scope than in the first movie. Obviously, they've got more of a budget. Um, but. It it also takes away. This is my my one real criticism of the film is that it it removes any ambiguity whatsoever as to whether this footage is super as whether this threat is supernatural or not. It absolutely is supernatural. What shade of supernatural is left ambiguous? Is it a ghost? Is it a witch? Is it a demon? Is it an alien? Is it some?
2: Is it something much more? Yes. Is
0: it some ancient monster? You've got great sound design, though, that really amps up the tension. Some of the best sound design in a movie I've seen recently. The finale is tight and scary. It throws in all of these new ideas that raise as many questions as answers, and it really adds to the characters seeming outmatched. It makes a call in the finale. It shows something that I suspect is divisive. To people who've seen it?
2: It doesn't uh, show the words. I know that. It
0: doesn't show the I know words. that. Yeah, But it shows something that I suspect is divisive. Sure. Uh,
3: but I, I like the design of it. It's cool. Me too.
0: I, I like it a lot, but I suspect that there are quite a few people who would argue that that it would have been better if you never saw what, what was hunting them.
2: Sure. One of the bits that I find is very effective is when they send the drone straight up, and the woods just keep going like it's much much larger than it should be it's like like a shrimp swallowed by a whale like that's the scale of it
0: yeah this one really got me I think think it's something to do with the setting the idea of the woods at night and the sort of like that darkness that even if you have a torch you can't see more than 10 feet in front of you it's that thing that isolation that what could be out there lurking behind a tree somewhere that, that freaks me out Um,
3: Yeah, because it's that whole thing of, it could be people, it could be animals, or even worse, it could be something that is a mix of the two.
0: I was surprised by its poor reputation, I thought it was fantastic.
3: Yeah, I I remember when it was announced. Like, that was exceptional. It was filmed under the title The Forest. The Woods, yeah. The Woods, and it was at... Comic-Con. I think Comic Con, yeah, it was like that two weeks, like...
0: two months before its release date that they showed and the then... screening and revealed it, and they have like footage. They haven't. They have a documentary making of on the Blu Ray disc that is longer than the film itself. That yeah. uh, they show that whole segment, and they show like everyone goes into the screening thinking that they're going to see the woods and then immediately after they go in, all the workers at the cinema come scurrying out and change all of the posters and everything so that it reads Blair Witch instead of the woods. Like yeah. So when everyone comes Indeed. out again, it's all of the Blair Witch uh, licensing. There are like sticks, stick figures and things hanging from the ceiling yeah. and, and things.
2: Like, I would totally freak.
3: Hmm. I, I would freak out. I would think that that was great. Like, I, I remember seeing it in the it best in cinem- possible way. I remember seeing it in cinemas and I loved
0: it. Lastly this week, I watched Dick.
3: (laughs) That's rude. We don't usually talk about that kind of thing on the podcast.
0: Well, this is a political comedy. It's directed by Andrew Fleming. He, weirdly, his previous film to this was The Craft, and he spun around into making this satirical film about Watergate. Uh, It follows two... Ditsy teenage girls in the 1970s named Betsy Jobs. She's played by Kirsten Dunst. And Arlene Lorenzo. She's played by Michelle Williams. They unwittingly witness the Watergate burglary because they live in the building. One of them does and they're having a sleepover. And to keep an eye on them, Richard Nixon, played by Dan Hedaya, Gives them jobs as the official White House dog walkers, walking his dog Checkers, who I believe I explained to you on his, uh, on, on our episode on Nixon was as much a political prop as anything else. Yeah, I'm not even. I, I don't think Checkers was still alive at the point that this movie is set. But uh, I'm not. Let's not ruin a a, a fun joke. They don't understand uh, that they've seen anything wrong. They don't understand really any anything of what's going on around them. But they accidentally cause the end of the Nixon presidency, (laughs) and that's turn out to be Deep Throat, the Woodward and Bernstein source that brings down Richard Nixon. Yeah, you
3: told us about this. You told us about this movie a while ago. I did.
0: This is a fun, surprisingly detailed satire of of that whole era the humor is silly sometimes too much for my taste it is very saturday night, saturday night live inspired in its humor there's some real hits and some real misses but you also get a lot of like snl alums of the era that are involved in it yeah you get lots of silly stuff from these airhead characters that are that are the main focus Williams and Dunst are both fantastic. They're a lot of fun. They have great chemistry with each other. They really sell these these characters and the comedy that they have with it. The Nixon take is really funny, but it's not super Nixony. Like it's it's not super attached to Nixon's personality or, or Nixon's specific yeah. idiosyncrasies. It is he's doing the voice. But other than that, it is sort of just an original comedy character, really, just given Nixon, Richard Nixon's history. But Hidea is yeah. hilarious in it. It's this blend of teen, teen humour with historical satire. Arlene falls in love with Richard Nixon while she's working in the White House. She... Has these like fantasies of sunbathing on a beach? Richard Nixon rides up to her, her on a horse, and says, "You know, come away with me, Arlene." And she says, "But what about Pat?" And she says, and he goes, "It's all right. She understands."
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh,
3: that's good. But what is he like? Shirtless and wrapped
0: No, he's wearing like a like a suit, but with no tie. And the shirt, like, unbuttoned the, the top three buttons.
3: <laughs> oh, that's even funnier. Um, that's even funnier.
0: But you, you get stuff like that. There's I don't actually think they ever call him Richard Nixon. They always refer to him as Dick. And um, so you, you get these these lulls. Like, they're at a, a roller skate disco thing. Uh, and the characters are talking to each other. Williams and Dunst are talking to each other. Dunster is saying you know there's something on your mind i know there is why don't you 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 tell me what it is and they're shouting to be heard over the music and of course just as a, uh, just as one song stops and starts uh, and starts the next one that lull in the music michelle williams shouts out i can't keep it in anymore oh god i love dick <laughs> so you have lots of plays on that particular name uh it's weirdly detailed. It's weirdly obsessed with sticking to the actual timeline and historical figures of the Watergate scandal and inserting the girls into those events with a pretty strict accuracy. Like it's not making up a whole, like obviously it's making up a ton, but it's like in terms of yeah. the actual events of Watergate and the people involved, it's not making up much at all. Like everyone is in there. All of those real life historical figures are all in there. Uh, the, the girls end up being the ones to convince John Dean to turn on Nixon and testify against him. Um, like <laughs> things like that. like they' all they're all they're all here. They accidentally are responsible in a roundabout way for the missing 18 and a half minutes on the Nixon tapes. Uh, <laughs> things like that. like they get into the minutia and considering that this is pretty clearly a film that is aimed in terms of tone and comedy at the MTV generation. Its fascination in what, at the time, was a quarter-century-old scandal is kind of bizarre. Like, it was a box office failure, probably because of that, but it's gold for me. It has an extended parody of all of the president's men. Woodward and Bernstein are both in it. Woodward is played by Will Farrell, and Bernstein is played by Bruce McCulloch. They hate each other. Bernstein's doing this sort of preening thing with his long Dustin Hoffman-esque flowing mane, you know, flirting with everyone. And it's this whole, like, Woodward is the serious journalist who's actually following things, and Bernstein is the one who's just kind of trying to insert himself into the investigation and they keep bickering, stuff like that. Yeah. The licensed music is excellent. They use a lot of it from that era, from the 60s and the 70s. There's great finale montage. Uh, that's set to Carly Simon's You're So Vain, which is is quite excellent. It's an odd duck, but it's right up my highly specific alley. And anyway, in any case, that's me done for the week. What have you guys been watching? All right, so the
2: first thing we watched is we completed a movie we previously hadn't completed. We finished watching Robin Hood. The The Egerton. most recent one, the town Egerton one. I had a good time with it. I'm a big fan of how the costume design has both ret- old, historically accurate elements, yeah, but is stylized to look like modern clothing. Yeah,
0: all those, all that leather. I mean, those peasants are dressed have a better wardrobe than I do.
3: Yeah, it, I just, I love the aesthetic of this film. It's, it's got that the same sort of aesthetic as Noah, and I love the aesthetic of Noah. Um. And it's also got some really great acting in it. Ben Mendelsohn, in this movie, is incredible. Every line they give him, he just, he kicks it in the dick. He, he, it's, it's brilliant. That scene between him and Robin, when Robin is sa- saying, I want see it at the table, that entire scene my jaw was on the floor that they went there.
2: Like, you could always rely on Ben Mendelsohn for really intense performance.
3: Absolutely. But you've also got a good... You've got good Jamie Foxx. You've got good Tyrone Edgerton. You've got Eve Hewson really trying to put on an accent, but failing quite it's often. Having
2: trouble deciding which one.
3: Yeah. Uh, um,
2: is it Jamie Dornan?
3: Jamie Dornan as Will Scarlet, playing um, this fine. really... He's, like, a politician. He's in the revolution to further his own political aspirations, kind of thing.
2: Uh, what I like about the this is that it has a lot of, like, superhero movie vibes to yes.
3: it. Yes. Yes, it does. Um,
2: particularly, Robin Hood is, like, a superhero. He's the Green Arrow! In the old stories, Robin Hood was one of the original English folk heroes, and... What are folk heroes if not superheroes? Yeah. To be honest. And I also see a lot of not-so-thinly-veiled uh, political chris- criticism yeah. that this movie has for stuff like the Iraq War, the one in Afghanistan... Uh, the church. Like the church. You got F. Mo.
3: Abraham garment. coming slithering <laughs> into the film. <laughs> Just as the most despicable person you could put on celluloid. Like, the, the moment he entered the film, I was like, I feel like I've gotta take a shower. This character is so slimy. And you've and also got Tim Minchin. And he's as fantastic Tuck. as well. As Friar Tuck. Apparently he got super ripped for the movie. It didn't matter. It didn't matter.
2: <laughs> uh, I, I, I like it. I, I think a lot of the fight scenes could use a bit more of a steady hand. With yeah, the camera.
3: and that and the chase scene that yeah sort, yeah that because, chase scene had some really bad CG
2: because a lot of the frantic editing in the fight scenes and frantic camera movement to the fight scenes you lose a lot of what looks to be really interesting choreography yeah really detailed set design yeah and character design
3: and throughout the action scenes I was just saying out loud hey Robin put your mask on. Hey, Robin, put your mask on. It it felt like I was going outside three months ago. Like, I was looking at everyone being like, put your mask on, put your mask on. Because you can see all of these guards, they're chasing him. They would recognize his face.
2: He kills a lot of them now.
3: He kills a lot of them, but there are people who see him that would have gone to the sheriff.
2: Oh, um, they also do this whole thing at the beginning of the, uh, your mission is more important than your love life thing. Yeah. That you see in like all the Batman shit. <laughs> you,
3: which you do. They, they you love to with the see hu- it. <laughs> oh, that was that was funny. Yeah. So I enjoyed um, this.
2: I, I had a good time with I it. I don't
3: really understand why it had so many bad reviews.
2: You get some I've seen some really shitty reviews of it from IMDb. Don't look at reviews on IMDb, folks. It's always a it's trash. Finally
0: ever trust us.
2: No, I mean no, like...
0: no. Only ever trust us, Harley.
2: Okay, okay. Lawson. I, I
3: I concur with Lawson.
0: Guys, we're trying to, anyway. Trying to come up with a, a rabid fan base that will believe anything we tell them, don't? <laughs>
3: <Wait>, anyway, <laughs> when t- we t- say the trigger the word,
0: they'll all rise up, and we can rule over everything. <laughs> Have you yes, seen this
2: yes, movie?
3: Indeed. I have. I love it. Poor snips. Yeah. I
0: mean, it's. I mean, it's nothing special. It's nothing extraordinarily original or, or groundbreaking. But it is for. It is a great one of what it is, and I. I, I don't see the problem with that. I think that people get so hung up. I think there's sort of a, a, a critics have kind of a hard on for going after blockbusters if they can. If they can find yeah. an angle, then they'll go after it because they kind of. And they have a point that blockbuster filmmaking has done bad things. It's not It's not been a a, a very healthy thing for interesting, smaller-scale stuff. Um, yeah. But at the same time, I don't think we should just be taking shots at things just for that sake. Robin Hood is fun. It does what it sets out to do. It looks good. It's darker it's than I thought it was going to be. It's exciting. You know.
2: It's grim as well. It's Although, dark I do like hell. the bit where... I do like the bit where you got all these people in, like, hoods and bandanas throwing what look like mold of cocktails.
0: Yeah, that's fun. <laughs> have you guys... That's, like, some
2: revolutionary Have you guys sh- seen
0: King Arthur, Legend of the Sword?
2: No, but I'm imagining it has very much... It is very
0: aesthetic. similar to... It's like Robin Hood meets the 2009 Sherlock Holmes. Like, it's it's directed by Guy Ritchie, and yeah. it is very much that kind I, of I've land. seen... I've
3: seen... Bits of it. I've seen some of the scenes with... It looks like Excalibur
2: grants him Jude Law.
3: Yeah. I've seen some of the bits with Jude Law. Uh,
2: But I'd like to see it. I I just haven't gone around to it. Another show that we watched was the most recent season of The Crown.
0: Have you seen the first few? Uh, Sporadically.
2: Sporadically. With a lot of historical drama, like The Crown... Or the Tudors, or
3: Spanish princess.
2: Spanish princess. I go in and out of watching every episode, but as long as I understand the historical context, I can put myself into it pretty easily. Yeah. Because let's be fair, I'm not terribly concerned about spoilers. <laughs> it already happened. Yeah. But the char- several new characters they introduced this season are Princess Diana,
3: played by Emma Cohen,
2: and. Jillian Anderson's terrifying Margaret Thatcher. Yes.
3: It is exceptional, Lawson. The (laughs) walk, the talk, the look. Everything. So is this... Mom and Dad were watching, and they were like, Jesus, that's spooky.
0: So is this... I mean, I've looked a little bit at the episode summaries just to see what topics they're covering this season. Is this the whole of the Thatcher era? Like, it seems to... The the last episode seems to be when she was deposed.
2: I'm not
3: sure. I'm not 100% sure. We haven't finished Ah. it yet. But it, it also shows, as Holly for the beginning of the relationship between Diana Spencer and Prince Charles and
2: and the really hard time that yeah. Princess Diana had
3: it also shows Bob Hawke
0: does he get really? Bob Hawke
3: in it yeah in an, yeah, in an episode called nullius i think it's the fifth or 6th episode and it goes Is into that the, the whole
2: time
0: some guy shot a blank at Prince Charles
2: I'm not sure they don't go into that if that is oh. the case it's when he brought Diana to Australia the first time well
0: there was a period in um there was at one point when Prince Charles was in Australia uh some idiot with a gun with blanks in it came running up and like fired multiple shots and it's the greatest clip because it's it's not a serious assassination attempt because it's a blank but yeah. Prince Charles doesn't know that but he is so unworried about it like he just he just looks with disdain at this person (laughs) as everyone around him is like running and freaking out and prince charles is just like what
2: the the basic idea behind the episode is that richard
0: roxburgh is bob hawk yeah
2: yes he is fantastic and he
0: played bob hawk in that tv movie a decade ago
2: what I like about the oh, episode is that Bob Hawks... that's the best Bob-hawks
0: thing I've heard about this, other than Gillian Anderson, my girl Gillian Anderson, my boy Richard Roxburgh's in here.
2: Oh, and Lawson, you already knew that the person who played Winston Churchill... Oh, our yes. patron saint, John Lithgow. Hell yeah. You got
1: skin.
0: So
3: you're super pumped
0: for the crown. Yep. Crown is absolutely on the list. Yeah.
3: Yeah. And... In- this is uh, all Bob Hawke being a staunch anti-monarchist.
0: Bob Hawke is in forty-eight is in the eighth episode as well. Yes. Oh yeah. Uh, so yeah.
2: Bob Hawke really wants to uh, separate from the United yeah. Kingdom. Yeah. He believes it's holding Australia back, and he he explicitly says to Prince Charles when Prince Charles visits him with Diana, "If you came alone, the resentment would have boiled over." And we would no longer be under your thumb, but the Australian people love
0: Diana. Do they? Because there was that whole undercurrent, especially with Bob Hawke, that he was a minister in the Whitlam government. So the fact that the Whitlam government was dismissed under the, by the Governor General, the Queen's representative in Australia, like that was this whole other thing—a a motivating factor for why he really thought that the monarchy was a bad idea. Did they address any of that at all?
2: No.
0: No, but, but
3: if you but know Holt's the historical not... context, you can definitely read that into the performance. You can tell that because... Roxburgh knows. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Because it's more interested in telling the story of these members of the royal family. That's a great line. Yeah, the relationship
3: between the... Diana and Charles.
0: In... We are five years away from the 50th anniversary of the dismissal. Like, that's the big, like, prestige. I know Netflix is trying to get its foothold in Australian programming. You've got Stan trying to be a competitor. I mean, one of those places has to do a limited series for the fiftieth anniversary of the dismissal, surely. Even like the ABC, surely.
3: I oh, know, the ABC they, will be doing be documentary after documentary. On oh yeah, you, they'll be doing you, documentaries. You I
0: just, I'm not sure if because because the you,
2: you want some premium
3: TV.
0: Because yeah, the ABC is uh is also because the ABC is funded by the government, um. They do tend to, I've noticed, steer away from things that are explicitly real life political in its in its dramatizations. Like you will be talking about a labor government that was removed from power, um, by through a coup between a liberal leader and the governor general. Like it it has. And with all of the, like, oh, you know, ABC, the, all of the un, totally unfounded, I might add, allegations of ABC left-wing bias, um, that seems like areas they might stay away from. Documentaries, sure, because hmm. you're getting everyone in to say what they what they think, but actually dramatising it and having to actually, like, put emotion on the screen. Hmm. Yeah. You know, I, oh, I, I know Would that it's... It's, it probably wouldn't... I, I don't know where we are at... A, at, in the culture with this guy at the moment, given the recent things with him, but um, I've always thought that Jeffrey Rush would make a fantastic Golf Whitlam.
3: Okay, I can see I don't you.
0: know whether I, I, I. He's just sort of faded out of view ever since those allegations against him. He hmm. he hasn't worked since 2017, 2018. So I don't know where we are in well, in the culture. You
2: know who could who you know who else could play Golf Whitlam. Ben Mendelsohn.
0: Eh, I could see him more as Fraser than Whitlam.
2: Oh, good point. Well, anyway, so one of the one of my favorite scenes. Uh, a hamster.
0: That that guy from uh, that 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 what's his name? The 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 one that Scott Morrison made envoy to the trade envoy. The the
2: <laughs> the guy from uh,
0: Better Homes and Gardens or whatever it is.
2: Yeah. I. One of the funniest bits of this season of Crown so far was that the basic story of the most recent episode we watched is that the Queen wanted to put sanctions on apartheid South Africa, and Margaret Thatcher was not to crash hot on that because she had a son who had interests, business interests there, and also because she didn't much care about the plight of the civilian population (laughs) anywhere, and... The royal children are getting kind of pissed that the Queen said anything at all, breaking with that tradition, uh, and this is before Prince Andrew's wedding.
0: Oh, God.
2: Uh, Prince Andrew's going on about.
3: The wedding of the Duke of York should be a landmark event, at home and abroad. Instead, thanks to the Queen's inexplicable lapse of judgment, the newspapers are full, not of Sarah and me,
1: the mummy's rift with the Prime Minister. Ah, yes. Sunday Times.
2: You have to admit she has made a gore awful mess of it. What was she
1: thinking? She did what she spent her life telling me I cannot do. She opened her mouth and expressed an opinion. And is being slaughtered for it. Bloody thoughtless of her, if you ask me. come on. You can hardly blame the newspapers wanting to write about something other than the wedding of a fringe member of the family who'll never be king. Ouch. Well, it's true, isn't it? fourth in line now, and by the time Williams had children, his children had children. Fringe.
3: You really just say that? On my wedding day?
2: That was impressively cunty.
0: Do they have a scene where Prince Andrew is making casual conversation with people and says, you know, I don't sweat.
3: <laughs> no, 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 uh... no, this this is like a little bit... They don't really show... They... they Okay, so he's he got mentions a
2: scene that he flew during the Falklands yeah, War. Yeah, they've
3: got a scene with the Queen where he's talking about a relationship that he has with this with a film actress, and it mentions this film about a seventeen-year-old girl's like sexual awakening and stuff, and it's really super uncomfortable. No, wait.
2: I was saying I don't know for Prince Andrew, seventeen's a little close to the expiration date. <laughs>
3: And and it goes into the and it, it doesn't go hard into it, but you can tell that the actor is playing him that way.
0: Um, I actually don't seen... think that. I think I'm trying to think of the timeline here because I think they filmed three season three and four back to back. I'm not sure the Andrew stuff was out then.
2: No, but he was talking about a movie that the actors had done, and that's mm. obviously something that people knew. Um, it, it, I know it, that they also said Prince Edward. Um, who's the one everybody forgets about, uh, who actually went into the arts. Oh, good for him. Funnily enough. He was like a movie a
0: Well, they've already got it done. Um, They've got it renewed for season five and six. Those are going to be the last two seasons. Imelda Staunton, yeah. who plays Umbridge in Harry Potter, is taking over as the queen. Uh, yeah. I think it was someone else of note also was playing Philip. Uh, let me just double check that. Uh, but, like, that's supposed to go into the early 2000s.
2: Governor Swan from. Uh, Jonathan uh, Price, yeah.
0: Yeah, Jonathan um, Price. But. We're we're pro Jonathan Price and pro
3: Mildred Staunton.
0: But, um, I would not be surprised at all if, you know, they ended after six years, but like five, six, ten years later, they come back after Elizabeth is not, no longer with us and they get someone like. Helen Mirren, who has, has previously worked with the writer of The Crown on The Queen. You'd get someone like Helen Mirren to do the, that last ten years.
2: Yeah. We also watched a show called Talking Heads. Yes. Uh, which is a series of monologues written by... Alan
3: Bennett. Alan Bennett. Who's a writer that I'm a really big fan of.
0: Right. So is this the the old series, or is this the current no, one? No, this is the new one. No, it's the okay.
3: new one.
2: So uh, we watched three
3: first, episodes. We watched. We watched
2: three episodes. The first one we watched is Lady of Letters, which has Ismelda is Staunton. Read by Ismelda Staunton. The second one, I'm not sure what the name is, but it, it is, is a
3: Chip in the Sugar, which has Martin Freeman in it.
2: And that, that was great. Uh, Chip in
3: the Sugar was the one where in the original series. The character was played by Alan Bennett. Yeah. And we also watched The Outside Dog, which stars Roshenda Sandal. These are great. The writing yeah. is sharp. It's detailed. It's
2: like you could tell yeah. that the storytelling has somewhat aged. Uh, due to the use of some of the language used in the yeah, monologues. Yeah, just,
0: just for context, but... this was originally a series of radio monologues that uh, Alan Bennett wrote that was then turned into a TV series, and I want to say the 80s, like, and people like Judy Dench and people like that, I think, were, yeah. were part of that. And this was revived earlier this year because of COVID-19, that because of yeah. all of the problems with production... That when film and television production shut down in the early part of the year, they were still able to make these because all it is is a single actor on a set talking to the camera. Yeah, Uh, and Alan Bennett, I think he wrote a few original. He wrote two new episodes of it,
3: and like the way that it's
2: great. It's like a
3: slow drip of information. That you get, like, A Lady of Letters is by far the best out of the three we've seen, because the reveal of what is actually happening in the story is exceptional, and Imelda Staunton plays it so beautifully.
2: And And, you know that we're telling the truth because we mustn't tell lies. Funny. And... Yeah,
3: the the
0: scripts You, have you don't some... get to condescendingly say "funny," Sean, with all of the ta- things that you grind us to a halt. <laughs> Harley can have oh, his own saw... zinger every once in a while if he wants to. You,
3: you, did you watch that video that I sent you the other day? I did.
2: Yeah, it's the exact same issue we have.
3: Yeah, yes, some of the episodes have a little bit of older language in them, but it's it works.
2: Like it's so like, tightly written.
3: Like it, it works for the characters.
0: I just want to correct myself. I said earlier on that Judy Dench was in the original series. She wasn't. I was thinking of Maggie Smith.
3: Yes, and Maggie Smith. Maggie Smith was in it. Maggie yeah.
0: Smith was in Bed Among Lentils. Julie Walters was in a couple of episodes. Eileen Atkins, Penelope I Wilton. This is this is mentions. very mostly uh, female-led monologues too. Yeah, I think it's there are there are in the entirety of this modern one at least there are two uh males the the other 10 are females and it's
3: fascinating it's brilliantly acted brilliantly written and very
2: nicely shot too very
3: nicely shot some of the lighting in the show is just great
2: like you could tell that since they had the time to just focus on one actor they were able to really dig into the set and all of that sort of stuff. And the
3: costumes also say a lot about the characters. It's it's very it's well done. really
2: great stuff. I can't wait to watch more. We watched some more Smuffle, but nothing scary. So we'll just skip that. So, this is kind of weird. I went on a walk today. I'm on the walk now. And I found a like an audio recorder thing in the forest behind my house. It sounds like the trailer for the Blair Witch project. I found it wrapped in a bag with a bunch of little stick men and human hair. And what I hope on people teeth. The weird thing is, it continues and sounds like a deep dive. But we haven't recorded that yet. We're recording that on Sunday. For the episode we're doing on the Blair Witch Project. It's a version of us, so why not? I guess here's the trailer for the Blair Witch Project? If the witch gets us, we should out luck. There are no corners in this forest, and I can't. You know what? I can't seem to. get out. Well, here's the trailer anyway.
1: This is my home, which I am leaving the comforts of for the weekend to explore the Blair Witch. I can see you.
3: I'm really excited
1: about this. Thank you for I'm the opportunity. I'm
3: very glad. This area's been haunted by
1: that old woman for oh, yeah. I don't know why you have to have every conversation on video. Because we're making a documentary. Not about us getting lost. We're making a documentary really? about a witch.
3: I do Lost? Admit that first. No, I know we're not locked.
1: You're all lost. All the place. How do we know it was people? Well, even if it wasn't, I'm not gonna play with that either. And it's all because of me that we're here now, <laughs> hungry, and cold, and hunted. I just wanna to apologize to Mike's mom and Josh's mom and my mom. Oh my <laughs> Tell me where you are, Josh
0: that was the short somewhat esoteric theatrical trailer for the Blair Witch Project it is a found footage horror movie directed by Daniel Myrick and Eduardo Sanchez it follows film students Heather played by Heather Donahue, Mike played by Michael C Williams and Josh Played by Joshua Leonard, they go into the woods to do a documentary about an urban legend, a supernatural figure called the Blair Witch, who is supposed to have been a woman accused of witchcraft in the 1700s who was cast out into the woods to die, but has instead since haunted the area, killing people who venture into the place and just generally being mean and spooky. They go in there to make their documentary for university, but they get lost pretty quickly. And then, as always happens in these types of movies, spooky shit starts happening. So why don't we start off by going around and each saying what we thought about this movie. Why don't you start us off, Sean? What did you think about The Blair Witch Project? I think the most interesting thing
3: about this movie is sort of twofold. It's the mythology behind The Blair Witch... And the effect that this film has had on the film industry. Because all of the history of the Blair Witch, all of the stuff about Rustin Parr, the missing seven kids, the search party at Coffin Rock, the witch who was killed, all of that stuff is fascinating. And the mockumentaries the that are there about it are all really well done and really cool and the effect that this movie had on the film industry cannot be overstated because without this i don't know if you would have gotten paranormal activity the paranormal activity franchise or cloverfield or any of these this was sort of the flashpoint of that kind of filmmaking
2: this is a very historically significant movie I don't think that that can be understated. And it's it's not only a time capsule of when it was shot, but it has affected horror movie storytelling both on the big screen and, most importantly, independent horror storytelling. On places like YouTube, you would not get your marble Hornets Everyman Hybrid Tribe 12 any ARGs if this movie didn't come out both in the form it came out in, but also how it came out. It came out with the same general philosophy as stuff like Ghost Watch or Cannibal Holocaust. Small-time actors that you have never seen before, or well, since, if they wanted it, could stay in obscurity to maintain. The integrity of the magic trick. I mean, on IMDb, this was real. On
3: IMDb, it listed them as deceased.
2: Exactly. It is that deliberate in trying to get you to believe that this is real.
0: And a lot of people did think it was real, to start off with. This is taut, it's tense, it's great, groundbreaking independent filmmaking, it's very, very clever, it's making a lot with a little. I think we should probably start with some behind-the-scenes things here. I want to read to you from an article on Cracked.com. Have you ever gone to this site? I have. I'm it's a it. very funny listicles, but they did a article. I think it's probably the article that got me interested in the Blair Witch Project many years ago now called Five Great Performances by Actors Who Weren't Acting. Yeah, The number one selection is The Blair Witch Project, the entire movie, and they pretty much sum up a lot of the film's production in their tongue-in-cheek, humorous way, so I'm just going to read you this entry. The Blair Witch Project tells a very simple story. Three college students head out into the woods to make a documentary about witches. They argue and bitch at each other for 89 minutes, until mercifully, they finally die. Some unspecified amount of time later, a major film company finds their footage and exploits the tragic snuff film for millions of dollars. That's the story we're intended to believe, anyway, and it's not hard to see why early audiences were sucked in. The entire viral campaign was based around people believing in the found footage nature of the film. The directors perfectly captured the feeling of a documentary being made by a bunch of cold, hungry amateurs. They did it by giving some amateurs a camcorder and leaving them in the woods for a week. The Blair Witch Project was radically innovative, in the way that duct-taping a camera to a toddler would also be an innovation. It did away with needless conventions like a script or acting, and opted instead to make sure every scare was a surprise for the actors. The only written lines were given to the creepy townspeople in the film's opening. The main characters were instructed to do random interviews, and the directors sneaked in these real, actual actors to mess with them. Everything else was contained to a 35-page outline with various info on the myth and a vague rundown of the plot and scenes. And that was it. Most of the filming took place over an eight-day camping trip. The directors would meet with the trio to give them supplies, a basic outline for the day's shooting, and directions to where they would meet them next. They then left them to improvise and essentially film their hike to the next rendezvous. Quite a few of the scenes were of the three literally getting lost. Sometimes, the directors would stay back and stalk the kids, breaking sticks or throwing rocks just out of sight. The cast got more and more exhausted, cold and sleep-deprived, and the crew would sneak into their campsite in the middle of the night to play clips of children's laughter and violently shake the tents. On top of this, they would give the three actors less food every day to gradually make them angrier and more ragged. The more you read about it, the more The Blair Witch Project seems like a cruel eight-day-long joke that somebody decided to splice into a movie. They were never able to obtain funding for their next project, surprise shoppers at the mall getting hit in the nuts with a baseball bat. So that's obviously a, a fairly humorous, tongue-in-cheek summation of all of that, but it really does sum up the sort of guerrilla-style filmmaking that they were doing here. It It is a phenomenally successful movie financially. It was made for... The sources differ whether it was made for $200,000 or $500,000. It was somewhere between those two ranges. Uh, Certainly, it was probably... That's also factoring in like the ad campaigns, probably, and, and things like that. But it made $249 million worldwide. For a long time, it was, I think, the most profitable movie ever made. So it really is a fascinating film just from a technical standpoint that this is something that these directors have sorted over a hundred hours of raw footage down into this eighty minute film, this this very taut and effective eighty minute film. And to hear them tell it, a lot of the the mockumentary stuff that was released around the same time was originally supposed to be in the film. That this movie was originally supposed to be about two hours long, and it was supposed to be a documentary a, a fake documentary about this found footage that had been discovered and that they were going to have all of those talking heads talking about, about the the, ca- the missing characters. They were going to be talking about the history of the Blair Witch and that interspersed in that, they were going to, to show the found footage. So it was going to be like 81, 80-odd minutes of the, the, the footage of them getting lost and killed in the woods and then another 40-odd minutes of talking heads. Mm. They decided ultimately, that they preferred it without the talking heads. They thought it was scarier that way. And so they then repurposed that stuff into a promotional mockumentary that aired on the sci-fi channel before the movie came out. So this is a really groundbreaking film in, in quite a number of ways. It's a really unique film. It, it, it still is unique. I can't think of many films that are like it in terms of certainly it's the viral nature of its, of its campaign, I mean, it really did kickstart that era of viral internet campaigning, didn't it? And I mean, you'd, you'd yeah. get stuff like Cloverfield later on that was was viral, and you'd get the ARGs and things, but none of them ever went to the degree that it actually convinced people that it might be real. None of it ever went to the degree that that they were listing the actors as missing, presumed dead on IMDb before the movie the, came I mean, with
3: Cloverfield, there's a pretty significant way that people would be able to find out that it's
0: fake. Oh sure, but like paranormal activity too. Like, oh, like yeah. all all of the found footage stuff, it's never again reached that kind of cultural fever point. Which when you think about it, it was pretty stupid in the first place. That Lions to buy into this idea that it's real, you are suggesting that Lionsgate has taken footage shot by dead hikers and stitched it together to make a horror film to be released theatrically in thousands of cinemas worldwide. That's a, that's, the moment you apply any critical thinking to that, it falls apart, but when have people ever been known for their critical thinking?
3: The legal ethics of it are astronomical, like, you would have to give them so much leeway to believe that it's real. Well,
0: that, in the mockumentary, they present it as the families of the, the missing people having obtained the footage from the police because the police think it's doctored. And it's presented in the mockumentary footage as them having released it to the world because they're still trying to find their kids. Yeah. But but yeah, I I was always a little bit, really, about the fact that anyone could believe for a second that the Blair Witch Project was not a work of fiction.
3: The sense of thematics in the film, the fact that it gives you that setup with the Rustin Parr would make a kid stand in the corner facing the wall while he killed another one, and that happens at the end of the film, like, that's the perfect setup and punchline. That doesn't happen in real
0: life. Which was not the original ending. Well, it was the original ending, but they didn't have that scene earlier on in the film about Rust and Parr. They just went down into the into the basement and Mike is facing the corner and that's how the movie ended. But there was none of that context about Rust and Parr making kids face the corner. So while the directors loved it and thought it was really creepy, test audiences were like, What? So they actually went and reshot that one interview earlier on with that guy who explains the whole rust and pathing to give it some context and on the discs there's actually a number of other alternate endings that they filmed before deciding to go back and add that interview that they decided that they might change the ending entirely so there is another ending where they go down there and mike is not facing the corner he is standing in the corner but he is facing heather face just blank and devoid of any emotion There's another ending where they go down there and Mike has, in the interim, the very short amount of time between going down there and Heather going down there, has been hung from the ceiling and is dead. And there's another one where they go down there and Mike is levitating in the air in some sort of comatose state. But what they ended up with, I think, is infinitely the most creepy of all of the yeah. things. I mean, this is the thing. We never see any of these characters die on screen.
3: Yeah, yeah. I think I remember seeing uh, one of the alternate endings where it's he's facing the wall, but from the ceiling they've hung a bunch of the like stick figure things and all of that. I like that it's just the Stark basement and he's just facing the wall because with that added context... It is so chilling. It's such a great ending.
0: Quickly about that ending, that's one of the great pieces of trivia about the 2016 Blair Witch is when they go down into that room, if you pause and freeze the frame, you can see Heather's camera on the ground where it was dropped at the end of the 1999 Blair Witch.
2: Let's talk a bit about our theories as to what is going on. Now, one of the theories that I've heard for quite a long time is that when Rustin Parr died, I believe that Rustin Parr, the person who murdered those seven children, was being, like, spiritually oppressed by the Blair Witch, or believed that he was, and that when he died, his he believed he became the Blair Witch. And Rustin Parr is what's haunting those woods. But that doesn't add up to The Search Party.
0: Well, all of the stuff prior to the 30s.
2: And and in the mockumentaries,
3: it shows that Rosslyn Parr didn't die in those woods.
2: I, I never said that he died in those woods. In a lot of ghost lore, you don't just haunt where you die, you haunt a place that's most significant.
3: Did you see the mockumentary where it was discussing that one of the kids could have manipulated Rustin into doing the murders? No, I didn't. Ah, uh, it's in one of the documentaries. I can't remember exactly which one.
0: Well, well, this is a thing that the first film does and that the second film does, but the, the third film kind of scuttles, which is that these first two movies, The Blair Witch Project specifically, leave it pretty ambiguous as to what is actually happening. You never see whatever it is out in the woods that is causing this threat. You never see what is really happening to them, you don't get those answers. You don't see anything that is undeniably supernatural that could not just be some maniac out in the woods. One of my favourite theories that I've seen expressed is that it is all just a setup by Mike and Josh to take Heather to the woods and murder her. Mm. Cause you 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 get you go into all of the stuff surrounding the movie, all of the extra expanded stuff that's been addressed in the mockumentaries, in, in the, the Blair Witch dossier on the website. They did this whole, like, where you get little details from everywhere that Josh is Heather's ex, that they had this, this relationship and that this just, and this just might be Mike, who is a friend of Josh, helping him kill his ex girlfriend. Stuff like that. But then also there's the debatably canon video games. <laughs> Highly debatably canon video games. I think that are, that are largely, uh, considered not to be canon now since the Blair Witch 2016. I think that contradicted some things. But in the, in the early 2000s, I'm not even talking about the most recent one I'm talking about. They, there was a trilogy of computer games, point and click computer games that was made by a developer called Gathering of Developers. And they, the graphics engine and characters were all derived from the producer's earlier game, Nocturne. So they did the first volume that was on Rustin Parr. Second one was on The Legend of Coffin Rock. Third one was on the Ellie Kedwood tale. And they didn't get great reviews. But the plot line that was expressed in them is that the Blair Witch project is actually an, an ain't. Is that the Blair Witch is not Ellie, but is in fact like a much older ancient evil spirit that was there long before it got the name Blair Witch, which actually, come to think of it, kind of does fit in with Blair Witch 2016 when I stopped to really think about it because, I mean, spoilers for Blair Witch 2016, but we we see that monster that is following them and its it's got these incredibly elongated arms and legs and... One of the theories that has been expressed there is that is in fact might not be the Blair Witch, but it is it is Ellie, because you get that extra bit of information at the beginning of twenty of the twenty sixteen Blair Witch that when she was taken out in the woods, she wasn't just tied to a tree; she was strung up in a tree with weights attached to her arms and legs to pull on her while she was hung up there. So the elongated arms and legs might just be a disfigurement from from that death. And that she is now a, a creature of the Blair Witch, that this, this ancient monster is using her as a victim.
3: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's a really cool theory, the theory that when you go into the woods for the specific purpose of finding the witch, then... I don't know, I, I like the idea that it is this unknowable thing that just is able to stretch the landscape, because in this film, you get the part where they're saying, we walked south, we walked south all day, we should have, we should have come across something. America isn't this big. You can't go walking for three days and find no one, kind of thing. And that's really really cool, that's a really cool effect and the fact that it starts to play on the people's emotions and sort of tear them apart at the seams like you got Mike going into an absolute laughing fit about kicking the map into the water which I think outside of the context he wouldn't even find funny but he can't help himself but laugh
2: it plays with time Yeah, I think
0: and in a much much more subtle way than the 2016 yeah. one does yeah.
2: Because the days seem to get shorter for them. They seem to run out of light much quicker than they think they will each time. They, like you said, one of the really chilling bits to me was when they realize that they're back at that same log that they have been walking south from the entire day. And it's the exact same log. And Heather is saying,
1: Please stop. No, Mike, it's not the same log. It's not the same log, Mike. Same Look, it's not. It is! Open your eyes! It's not the same log. Oh. <laughs> it's, not <laughs> it's not the same log. It's <laughs> 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 <laughs>
2: and then when she gets closer to it she sees it and just says it's the same it's exactly the same and just like gives up
0: well here isn't kind of an interesting thing on that is apparently because they're being given directions on where to go apparently they weren't told that they were going to end up back at that log so part of their reaction is also for christ's sake we just spent the whole day walking in a circle (laughs) like like that's kind of an undercurrent they have, in in their minds, just spent the last 10 hours walking around the woods to end up right back where they came from. Which, when you think about it, like they didn't actually use much footage in between when they left and when they arrived back. So it's really just 10 hours in the woods that they spent really torturing these actors once more.
3: And I love the scene where they come across all of the totems and stuff. Just sort of the holy shit moment from Mike was very fun. Because they didn't know that shit was coming.
0: There was originally supposed to be a little more explicit stuff in here. Mm. There is the scene where they're running out of their tent and Heather yells, Oh my God, what the fuck is that? What the fuck is that? Mike was originally, he well, he was supposed to pan left at that point, but he forgot to. Because there was actually someone in a white gown. A woman in a white gown, standing in the distance, staring at them. But the fact that we don't see it, I think, is so much more effective. Yeah. Like, it's just sort of left in your head, what could that have been?
3: Yeah, and it's that whole thing of, in these found footage horror movies, it's always the thing of people keeping the cameras on for longer than they should. And that's explicitly talked about in this movie, where Mike and Josh say, just turn the camera off just just turn the camera off it's not helping but in something like paranormal activity how often do you walk around your house with a you know with your phone out taking video how often does anybody do that
0: well i i feel like you can make a pretty good argument that at a certain point she's filming a final document
3: oh sure but but the movie mentions it, at least. It it plays with that idea. Yeah. It's everything that would come after, like Cloverfield. You should have dropped that camera the moment you well, saw the Well, they mentioned
0: it in Cloverfield too, that they keep filming because people will want to know, ha- will want documentary evidence of what has yeah. happened. Like, this is a historical event that will need documenting. But yeah, you, you have the stuff in, in Blair Witch Project where she is pretty much by the end... She is recording evidence for whoever finds
3: them. Yeah. And the way that they found the footage is fascinating. They found it in the foundations of a burnt down house under
0: dirt that was undisturbed. Rust and Pa's house. That yeah. was burnt down. But that's the house that they end up in at the yeah. end. So time is all being being messed with.
3: Yeah. So they were thrown back in time.
2: I disagree, John. They weren't thrown back in time. Time exists. Every single... I believe that every single event, the expedition to Coffin Rock, this documentary, the second film, the stuff with Rustin Parr, the stuff with the original witch, is all happening exact same time. Time doesn't go linearly
0: It can't, though, there. Harley, because then Rustin Parr should have been in the house.
2: No, what I'm saying
3: is... But Book of Shad- in Book of Shadows, the Blair Witch thing is completely fake. That's the point I'm of it. Talking-
0: what you're saying is that the events of Blair Witch 2016 and the events of Blair Witch 1 and the Coffin Rock people and the Rustin Parr people... They could
2: all be happening a different...
0: Yes. Which we get We get kind of a hint of in Blair Witch 2016 that that once those yeah. two characters separate from the group, they come back a couple of hours later, but for them it's been five days. Yeah. Yeah. We yeah. get the, the implication that time is sort of juddering and, and is is fluid in a way, that different timelines are encountering each other.
2: Yeah. Yeah, th- that's what I mean. Like the laughing children thing. Like, my idea is that the fact that the house is back simply means that Rost and Pa's not there at that point in time. I think... I, I, and can come back, bury what he saw, the, the cameras...
0: Get rid of no, the but bodies. even then, in, in like what John was saying was that when they uncover that stuff, they're talking about how that that soil has been undisturbed for hundreds of years.
2: That's what I mean. It's like
0: Rustin and pa wasn't there a hundred years ago.
2: No, no, I'm saying that due to how time oh, yeah. doesn't seem okay. to work, he buries it. He thinks it's his present day when he's burying it, but it's actually him burying it hundreds of years ago.
1: It would be Time really. Time
2: is melting.
3: I and... think it would be really fascinating to do a third movie where the person comes across that, that footage and buries it. And it's like in, you know, 2024. And then you get that information about it being buried 100 years ago in the 90s. Well. I think that would be really interesting.
0: Lionsgate. Not Lionsgate. There is a television series of the Blair Witch project in development.
3: Oh, cool! Uh,
0: the co-director of the original, Eduardo Sanchez, revealed in October twenty seventeen that he and the rest of the film's creative team are developing a Blair Witch television series. In February twenty eighteen, it was announced that the series will be released on the studios on Lionsgate's new subsidiary Studio L, which specialises in digital releases. So they are also Yeah, so, I mean, this is too big a brand name for it to stay dormant forever. Of course. It will come back in some capacity. I mean, even just a couple of years ago, no, it was 2018, 2019, that they did that that console game, that Blair Witch game. 2019, August 2019, it came out.
3: And it's one of those things like Outlast.
0: So they are still doing stuff with the franchise, so I would be interested to see that going.
3: Yeah, and Eduardo Sanchez said about the franchise in 2009, ideally, each Blair Witch film would be a completely different kind of movie, he says. We've thought about doing a film that takes place in the late 1700s and looks like a Kubrick movie with gritty-looking people and lighting.
0: Well, they said in they said in the documentary on the 2016 Blair Witch uh, that they kind of... Gave up on that. That Lionsgate didn't wasn't interested in, and what they were wanting to do was the witch, like the movie, the witch. Yeah. But I, I feel like I feel like we should talk a little bit about the characters and just the general escalation of of the things that happened to them, the the narrative plot of the movie. The yeah. main criticism that I see leveled at this is that it's just three assholes in the woods arguing with each other for an hour and a half.
3: Well, I mean. Yes, it, that's true, but it's it's also got three really funny improvisers.
2: Mm. It is three assholes who get lost in the woods, but that's not all it's doing. Mm.
0: I think there was a backlash. Obviously, I think there were people who felt tricked that it wasn't real. I think there were also people that you you always get it that when the hype is big enough that um. There's a backlash to it, because if it's yeah. popular, then surely it must suck it's cool to hate it now. oh it's not really scary it doesn't show anything that kind of thing I mean same thing happened with paranormal activity you know mm. it, it happens to to everything that gets popular but i do I think it's really effective, I and mean, when you consider the manner in which it was made and the scale at which it was made, even more so yeah i i Absolutely. It's interesting to see some of the the little stories that they have going on behind the scenes that in the movie obviously Heather and Mike are kind of at each other's throats with yeah. Mike having, you know, got kicked away the the map and gotten them permanently lost. Even more lost. But apparently and and this also kind of goes into that fact that Josh and Heather are exes that apparently in the original In all of the footage that was shot, Josh and Heather were the ones that were at each other's throats much, much more than Heather and Mike. And that the directors ultimately, through editing, cut down on that a lot because it really seemed, when they kept it in, like it was two men teaming up on a woman and it didn't play very well at all. You also, I I like that Josh just disappears in the night and never comes back. And we never find out what happened to
3: him. Voice in the distance.
0: You get the yelling, the the yelling that they 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 say in the film. Like it's not him. If it was him, he would be telling us where he is. He would be telling us things other than help, 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 over and over again. Yeah. Um, But that's another great little story, which is that originally they were told that Mike was going to disappear, but (laughs) instead the like the day before Mike was scheduled to disappear, the directors left a note for Joshua Leonard to meet them after the other actors fell asleep, then told them that you're dead. You know, you can go home now. Yeah. And so when the actors woke up, that stuff was all improvised and was a little more genuine before they actually found out that actually, you know, Josh had gone home. Um, and that yeah. this was planned and that Mike was actually going to stay on. But uh, I like this note. Leonard was actually glad to leave because there was a Jane's Addiction concert he wanted to go to.
3: That is so 90s. <laughs> that, I think that is probably one of the most 90s sentences I've ever heard in my life.
0: But it, it's fascinating that... They there are all those stories. There are these stories, you know, the reactions I'm reading the IMDB trivia here. The reactions from Heather, Mike, and Josh when they discover they have walked south all day and ended up in the same spot are real. They were genuinely upset that they had walked all day for nothing.
3: <laughs> I mean, wouldn't you be? You'd be pissed.
0: Mm. Like, Heather Donohue was apparently a little bit nervous because she didn't know if this was all on the up and up and legitimate or not. She asked the directors the first time she met them whether they were making a snuff movie. She took a knife with her and kept it in her backpack just in case. Fair enough. Again, we already mentioned that the townspeople were often plants by the directors. All of these little interesting little narratives that are going on in the behind the scenes that make it fascinating. There is actually a book about the making of the Blair Witch Project called Eight Days in the Woods that goes into all of that stuff. And I, I feel like I, I should probably read that. That seems like it'd be pretty interesting.
3: Yeah, it's it's always fascinating to see how a horror movie gets made. Like, I've, I've read half of a book about the making of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and what you're getting from that is that the places where they're filming are having such an effect on the actors because, obviously, in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it was boiling hot, and everyone was miserable, and all of this stuff, and it's always interesting to hear those behind-the-scenes stories from movies like these, where it's the veneer of realism, which is sort of the point.
0: There's that, and and the fact that it's all improvised, mostly, that there are no dialogue, That, that gives it an immediacy and a sense of reality.
2: There's a raw reality. Exactly.
0: Like, like that's the thing that has not really been imitated even in other found footage stuff. That sure, in Cloverfield, there's improvisation and stuff, but there's a script that they're following. Mm. You know, whereas here, it was just an outline. It was just do this. It wasn't telling yeah. them what to say. It was stuff that they came up with on the fly. And that gives it that... Like, like the editing in this, when you consider it in that sense, when you consider that it is three different cameras, over 100 hours of footage, that has been edited down to a really tight, scary 80 minutes, that's masterful mm. editing. I mean, like, that's extraordinary. Of course, extraordinary.
3: The, the amount of footage that they would have had to sift through in order to find the goal. Yeah,
0: but to make it make sense, to make it work dramatically.
3: Yeah, because there is a sense of that escalation you were talking about, how things just progressively get worse and worse and the relationships start to disintegrate. Because at the beginning, when they're going through the town and everything, and when they're at the motel, they're just hanging out like friends. But slowly but surely, after the map goes missing, they just fall apart until closer to the end when mike and heather sort of decide that in order to survive they really need to close ranks and you know keep each other safe as well
2: here's an interesting and scary idea what if they the voice they heard screaming was josh and due to how time works he just couldn't hear them
0: yeah it's it's i think it's it's a lot more i think it's good we don't know i think it's yeah. good we never find out i think that ambiguity is kind of off the point it's it's one of those those things like i always love the mystery box stories i mean my favorite yeah. tv show ever is lost and i i see a lot now i've seen the blair witch project i see a lot of the blair witch project in lost a lot of it mm. including the time stuff like that show goes some places but that ambiguity of what is actually happening here that feeling that, that that characters are being overwhelmed by events that that compelling mystery at the center of it all of what is going on like I love that stuff and the ambiguity is so effective I know people don't like ambiguity people like being told what the ending is people like having answers but the answers are never as interesting as the mystery itself you know
3: yeah it comes back to that horror movie thing that we were talking about that we've talked about a few times. Your brain yeah. will come up with something far worse than someone could put
0: in a film.
2: It's the absence that's What's that
0: Netflix documentary, Evil Genius, from like last year or something, where they where it was uh an old man robbed a bank but then he had a, a bomb collar on his neck. He had been abducted and had a bomb put on his neck. Oh, yeah. That. And 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 you I'm cool. watching this trailer and I'm thinking, oh, my God, for the first half. And then, of course, because it's a documentary, because it's real life, they start talking about, in the trailer, about the culprits. And it's like, oh, these are just rednecks who just came up with this idea. This is not some evil, like, supervillain who's... It's not the Yeah, it isn't the Riddler. It's just some guy. And, mm-hmm. like, the answer is never as fascinating as... As the question. Like, that's the yeah. thing with Jack the Ripper. No one's going to... Like, the reason that Jack the Ripper is still such a famous serial killer... I mean, there is the fact that he was one of the very first of his kind. That it was taking place in London. So, it was a place with a lot of news media. So, it got heavily publicised. There was the the simple macabre fact of what he did. The, the, the particularly violent manner in which he killed people. But... Really, the reason we still talk about Jack the Ripper in the hushed manner that we do, over a hundred years later, is that we don't know who he is.
3: Yeah, and even if someone found proof of who he was, it's just going to
0: be some guy. It's just going to yeah, be it's some guy. Be some
3: guy, and there will be people who are like, "No, it couldn't be," yeah. because
0: X Y. Look reason. at all these these other people. You know, Ted Bundy, Jeffrey Dahmer, all of these people. It's never, it's, it isn't, it isn't a narrative. This is real life. It's not a narrative. It's not going to be some, someone who was introduced in the first act so that they can be a real twist. It's just going to be some guy. First time anyone ever heard the name Ted Bundy was when they were telling us he was a serial killer. It's, it's, it's not going to be some big twist. I mean, the, they have all those conspiracy theories. Oh, maybe it was, a, maybe Jack the Ripper was a member of the royal family. That's about the only, the only version where a reveal would actually you know, have that thing, but for the most part, it's probably you know, it's 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 Gary from down the road who has a weird collection of knives. Like that's who it is. It's someone you've never heard of before.
2: Yeah, it's it's like the Zodiac. The Zodiac only has the power that the Zodiac has still because we have no exactly.
0: idea. And that ambiguity to bring it back to the Blair Witch is more valuable because you you just don't know. You just don't. It defies explanation. You can't square it away in your own head. And again, the Jack the Ripper thing. I don't. I'm not very interested in who Jack the Ripper was. I mean, it would be nice to know just to put this, you know, whole chapter of history to bed, wouldn't it? But I'm more interesting. In, I'm more interested in why was he doing what he was doing? You know, the way that he killed those women, Jack the Ripper, was was very methodical, and suggested that he had a goal. Yeah. Why did he stop? you know that's the other thing did he accomplish whatever it was that this this in his twisted mind he thought he was achieving did he just get hit by a horse and carriage crossing the street one day and no one ever found out that the guy that got run over was jack the ripper i mean Mm. these are the things i have to say that would be pretty these are the things that 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 the fact that it is ambiguous that you can never know the answer to that question that's what makes it scary that's what makes it fascinating. Jack the Ripper is scary because it could have been anyone. It could have been anyone. Zodiac is scary because it could have been anyone. The Blair Witch Project is scary because you have no idea what is going on. I mean, if they showed, if they showed in the last in the last scene of this movie, you know, they had some big reveal where, like, you know, a bearded redneck comes wandering out of the woods and says, "Ha ha, it was me the whole time." We wouldn't be talking about this movie 20 years later. No. We just wouldn't.
3: And it's, it's. It is that whole thing of you will come up with something worse than can be put on camera. With any horror movie, how it talks about ghosts and stuff, do you know. And how it talks about our oh, hell and how, how awful it is. Hell is always going to be this unknowable thing until you die. And your mind is going to make up the most horrific thing possible for, it, for that to
0: be. And they just throw the perfect, the perfect bits of, like, crazy at you. Like, that, yeah. like the stick figures, the, the, the little touches, like the disturbing the of the-, the rock formations. The fact that Heather finds Josh's tongue and teeth. In a, in, a, in a scrap of his shirt and this also is is apparently a reference to a washington irving story the devil and tom walker in this story tom's wife goes to find the devil in the swamp and never returns home when tom goes to find her he discovers her apron with her heart and liver inside so it's it's throwing just these little things at you that you're 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 getting the fact that it's the teeth and the tongue, but at the same time, you're hearing Josh's voice in the woods. He ain't yeah. talking mm-hmm. if he's got no teeth or tongue. He's not making words, at least. It's more like... Uh, uh. Yeah.
2: He can still make sounds.
0: Yeah. It might have probably not not like the sounds that I made. I don't think he turned in Arnold Schwarzenegger, but...
3: Please,
0: <laughs> then is you... counting. But then you see that the this stuff that they they cut. Like, one of the original script ideas was for the ending of the movie was for a giant sized version of the stick figure to start chasing them through the woods. That would have been awful. <laughs> that would have been god-awful. Even if, even if they had the budget to pull it off, which they sure as hell didn't, it would have looked ho- hokey as hell. But even if it was done in the most realistic way possible, that would have been stupid. And it would have ruined the ending of the movie. Like, like they they're working with their limitations and it's it's like the shark in jaws they couldn't afford the shark kept breaking so you only saw the fin they couldn't afford yeah. to do much of anything so they worked with their limitations and what we got was effective
3: yeah and it it just creates so much more mystery like what did happen to those that search party at coffin rock where did their bodies go
2: like that's always particularly troubling because didn't some somebody, like, lashed them all together yeah. in a circle mm-hmm. so that if any of them moved, it caused not only them excruciating pain, but also
0: the And others. the fact that they were somehow lashed before they died, before yeah. they were killed. So yeah. when you put that into perspective, it means someone had to tie, what, eight grown men together to subdue them and tie them together like that? And then to also remove the bodies in such a short period of time, as is also expressed. Like, that's, yeah. that that would be kind of an interesting thing of, you know, Blair Witch Project, 1700s edition, 1800s edition, the Coffin Rock story.
3: Yeah. And you've also got the fact that they were a search party looking for another search party who disappeared. And they were never found. You got the whole Rustin Parr thing. Of, was he just this insane serial killer of children? Or was he being forced to by just a freaky, awful kid? Or were both of them being oppressed by this eldritch horror, which is the witch?
0: And again, spoilers for Blair Witch 2016, but you get the version of the Rustin Parr character in 2016, the modern version of him as this guy who... Appears to have been trapped and made a servant of the Blair Witch, and that mm. whenever they encounter him in the movie, he is always visibly much older than he was the last yeah. time, to the point that in his final appearance, he appears to be an old man. That would yeah. have been a really interesting take, by the way, if they had. It probably would have been too explicit and would have robbed it of some of the ambiguity, but if they had sort of hoed it up, like they had. They had connected the name Rust and Parr that you only really realised that he was Rust and Parr travelling through time at the very last point. Again, I just keep looking at some of these creepy things. The teeth found by Heather near the end that are supposed to be Josh's teeth were real human teeth that Edward Sanchez, Eduardo Sanchez, managed to convince his dentist to give him. (laughs) The hair, when they pulled Josh... To
3: be a fly on the wall of that discussion...
0: Are you using it for a movie, I swear? <laughs> I know, I know that one time you gave them to me and I made a necklace out of them, but I swear this time it's for real I'm making a movie.
3: This time it's for the up and up.
0: The, the hair in that bundle is actually Joshua Leonard's hair. They gave him a haircut once they pulled him out and then put his hair in the in the <laughs> bundle. Like, it's it's all of this...
3: Did he end up going to the concert?
0: I don't know. These, these are the questions we really need answered. Not... <laughs>
2: I dread to ask, where'd they source the tongue?
0: I would imagine that it was just... uh, You can get, like, tongue at any butcher. Animal tongue.
2: Yeah.
3: It was probably just a chunk of that, because it wasn't his whole tongue, it was, like, a chunk of it.
0: And it was... And and there's just a level of realism to it that I enjoy. Like, the fact that when you're... when, When they are... When it's Mike and Heather at the end you're only getting audio from one of them. Cause one of the cameras doesn't have audio. One of the cameras is video only. And so when you're seeing the perspective of that camera, you're still hearing the person holding it as if they were speaking way a ways away. Like and it just adds to this whole disorienting effect that it actually took me a little a few seconds to realise why the audio was the way that it was. I mean that that monologue that Heather has. I'm lost in the woods, you know. We're going to die out here.
1: I'm scared to close my eyes. I'm scared to open them.
0: <laughs> I'm going to die out of here. Was entirely improvised. She did that herself. Yeah. And... And it's iconic. And... That shot of her face, that iconic shot of her face, when you're only seeing, like, the top right quarter of it, was an accident. She she had, because of the way that those cameras were in the 90s, she couldn't just hit a button and flip the perspective of a phone to see what was in frame. She had to hold it in front of her. She thought she was getting a whole face in shot. But she wasn't. She was just getting the quarter of it. And it, it's little accidents like that that give it that authenticity that you could never replicate in a big budget film or, or in a studio film and a professionally made film. Like, for as much as I love Blair Witch 2016, I probably like it more than I like this original. It doesn't have that raw, visceral feeling of people lost in the woods. It's clean. It feels professional. It feels at all times like, like off, like just out of frame, there's a guy with a boom mic, you know?
2: The audio's too clear for each camera. It's
0: scripted. It doesn't have that immediacy, it doesn't have the stuttering, it doesn't have the the roundabout circle, circles that that people speak in sometimes, that you get all of that in the Blair Witch Project because of the fashion in which it was produced.
3: Absolutely. I, I think I remember reading something about someone writing a book or something, where it's a spoof of the Blair Witch and it turns out that all of the sounds that the camp, that the three filmmakers hear is just this group of scouts who are lost in the woods as well.
2: You see, that's the thing. Like, the breaking of the branches walking around that campsite, that could be easily explained by any number of other people who got stuck in there. The witch doesn't actually have to physically be present in those earlier bits. It's just what the... woods do like it's this trap
0: again divorcing Blair Witch 2016 from proceedings there's also the idea of why is this happening to them in the first place like there's the fact that they disturbed those stone formations very early on in the film uh like for the longest time before Blair Witch 2016 that was a theory that they had they had disturbed something there There is the fact that they actually reference it in the the theatrical part of the film, but it's a cut scene, the fact that Heather couldn't resist taking one of the stick figures after that first night, when they wake up and they're all hanging there.
2: Or or were they just unlucky? Yeah. You not only never find who's doing this to them, or what's doing this to them, you really don't find out why. Mm. It's utterly... Random. You
0: get some some good. You get some theories in the 2016 version. There is a deleted scene from the Blair Witch Project that is included on the the Blu-ray disc. And you you guys you haven't seen the Blair Witch Project until you've seen it in high definition. So much detail that you couldn't see before. Like totally <laughs> totally needs to be seen in the highest resolution available. Can't wait for that 4K scan. Man,
2: that's going to be incredible. But. Oh, the, the like, amount the rich, of deep blacks. Oh, the amount
3: of formats that they'll have to chew through in order to do that scan isn't gonna be a. That's gonna be a big ask. <laughs> but they
0: have a deleted scene on the the disc where it's the three characters in the tent at night chatting with each other about what they think it is. There is a mention. I I think it remains in the beginning of the movie of the Blair Witch cult. And that they sort of suggest, well maybe there are still people out here who are doing this. Mm. You know, and they they run through the gamut. Maybe it's a redneck, maybe it is the Blair Witch, you know. That kind of thing. It's there's all of this stuff around the edges if you're looking for it. There are Blair Witch books, did you know this? Yeah. Like six books, which I might have to track down and read. At least one of them is available on Kindle, but the other ones are gonna be a pain in the ass to try and get a hold of. But there's all of this cool stuff around the edges that adds to the mystery of it and the ambiguity of it. And I don't know, as I said, it really is my kind of thing. The mystery box thing, the lost in the woods thing, the creepy ambiguous thing that you never really know what it is. That's all right up my alley. One thing we haven't touched on is how the characters sort of turn on each other. Yeah. Mm. That, Again, they're working with what they've got. They have these actors and they have the ability to make sounds off screen. That's about all that they've got. They, they can't do yeah. some big monster like they did in, in the 2016 Blow Witch. They can't do any of the, the effects or the stunts that were in that movie. So instead, they spend a lot of time with the characters arguing that they, they, you, you get that feeling of people in these high risk situations that Turn on each other, I mean, it's the Night of the Living Dead thing. It's not just the zombies we've got to worry about, it's the people next to you. That's... Mm, yeah. Well done. I mean, it, it goes into the criticisms against the movie, but I again, I think for what the movie is and what it's trying to accomplish, I think it works really well.
2: I also like the fact that on a level of cinematography, the use of the handheld camera makes the characters inherently vulnerable as well as us as an audience when you're watching a standard home movie you don't see everything but you see more than the normal than the character does of you see behind them you see around them you see establishing shots and all that stuff in a found footage structure you're given just as much as they are mm. you are left vulnerable because there's nothing more terrifying than what you will not see at points,
0: we're given less than the characters. And that's the thing we don't really think about when we think about found footage horror movies. And indeed, in a lot of them, including 2016 Blair Witch, it is sometimes cheated. But in Blair Witch Project, these actors are also the camera people. They're also the cinematographers. Yeah. They're, they're, they are deciding where to point the camera. And so I, I think it's it's kind of easy to overlook the level of accomplishment that, that they have with that stuff, that it remains coherent, that it remains yeah. effective and creepy, and you see what you need to see, and it it keeps that level of amateurishness that gives it its rawness and its authenticity.
3: Heather had to be taught how to use one of those characters. It's
0: functionally effective. Well, that's, that's the thing. They have that bit of chat where they talk to that old lady who's ranting about Blair Witch, and they talk in the car afterwards about how Things were out of focus because it said it in meters, but it says it in feet also. Well, yeah, but meters is more readily available, readily visible, and I didn't see the feet thing till later on. That was just because the actor didn't know how to work the camera yet. That was all real mistakes, and that was them really like unpacking the mistake afterwards. You're getting that kind of authenticity, and the way that they, the, the actors do a good job fulfilling that double duty i mean we 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 haven't really given we've we've given props to the actors but i I don't think we've quite stated enough how crucial they are to this whole endeavor if you had the wrong three people or even if any one of them was not up to the task then the whole movie sort of falls apart they exactly. need to be able to improvise. Yeah. They need to be able to go along with what any, what, what these two insane directors are throwing at them, shaking their tent in the middle of the night. They need to be able to operate the camera. They need to have their own sense of dramatic structure and of, of pacing and, and dramatic heft because they are as much the screenwriters as the directors were in writing in writing that narrative. They need to figure yeah. out the beats of scenes as they're doing them. They need to work their way through in such a way that it will edit together in the end. And the fact that they do is a credit to them.
2: Yeah, Oh, absolutely. And it's no surprise that this is such a significant film. It opened up a whole new avenue of filmmaking for amateur filmmakers. It yeah. told them that it was possible. I, for one really have a passion for found footage stuff. Mm. There's a whole lot of interest... Like, one of my favourite movies is Chronicle, mainly because it's actually really good. And
0: because it's a superhero movie, Harley. Come on. Yes. That's like, that's the mystery box thing for me, that's the superhero thing for you. It touches your buttons.
2: It it does. And Dane DeHonson and is great in most things. I also like the found-footage video games. Outlast. Like, Outlast... Or, I've seen footage of the Blair Witch video game and how that functions, like the limiting of the field of vision in that. I got like into the asylum and outlast, having to like slide so- through that first, like the big cabinets. bookcase thing. And when I got out of that and saw and heard some of the things coming up, I'm like, No, I'm done. <laughs> I can't do it. It's like it's immediately you feel afraid. Hmm. because of your limitation. And these, in a lot of horror movies, vulnerability is where the horror is stemming from. These are just three kids in the woods without any hope at all. There is nothing they can do to either stop the witch, escape the witch, or comprehend the
0: witch. Is there anything else that you guys would like? Oh, right, I wanted to say sound design. Is incredible. Yes, yes. I don't know how much of that was done live and how much of that is done in, in the editing. Either or, it is extraordinary.
2: It's seamless.
0: The sound design is like 75% of the scariness.
1: Mm. <laughs>
0: it, it's what you're hearing. The the crunches in the woods, the, the space that they're in is empty but at the same time feels so populated with danger. Mm. Yeah. Is there anything else that you two would like to add?
2: No. No. I think that's about it, but but we do have the Parents' Guide.
0: There is not really much of anything in the Parents' Guide to work through this week. However, there is one item. Someone has helpfully advised us that there are 154 uses of the word fuck in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> many clearly spoken and many others screamed out.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Naturally. I mean, scary situation. You're going to be cursing like a sailor.
0: In any case, before we finish up here, why don't we all go around and each say who our MVP is for this movie and what our favourite scene or sequence is. I will start us off and I will say that my MVP is Heather Donahue. I feel like I have to go to bat for her because she is is the anchor of, of those three actors, I mean, all of the actors are pretty brilliant, but she is the anchor of the three. She is the one that's giving us the the driving narrative through the, through the movie. She's the focus character. She's the focus character. Presumably, that oh, means yeah. she's the one that, that gave them the most material to work with in the editing. Mm. Like, I'm sure that, that Josh and Mike had their own address-to-camera moments, too, that they did by themselves. Mm. But Heather's is the one that makes it in. I've got to go to bat for her because I think she's spectacular in it. I think that monologue of hers is brilliant. It 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 is a great bit of acting and it's a great bit of writing considering that she's coming up with it on the fly. I also feel the need to go to bat for her because there was a weird backlash to her. I suspect part of it has to do with misogyny, that there is a bit of a, yep. you know, the fact that she is sort of a... A demanding female character, you know, that she's not soft and she's not obliging and she isn't just going along with whatever the males say. But mm. Heather Donahue was actually, even though she was nominated for, for awards like Best Actress in the Chainsaw Awards, you know, Blockbuster Entertainment Award, she was a nominee for, she was also the winner of the Razzie Award for Best, for Worst Actress that year. She was nominated for the Stinker Award for Worst Actress that year. This is an absurdity. This is absolutely ridiculous. Even if you don't like the character, I can't see how you can look at that performance and not see the artistry of it, the value of it, mm. the, the technical accomplishment of it. And so I've got to give it to Heather Donahue.
3: Yeah, and it's interesting. She's. This is a quote from her talking about her character in... The Blair Witch Project. It's so funny because I've heard people say it's a feminist movie because there's a woman in charge, and I've heard it called a, a completely anti-feminist movie because this woman screws everything up. It's just, who cares really? It's just a movie. But I think you can look at it as a feminist film. I mean, well, hell. If the Blair Witch is a woman, she's really ultimately in control of everyone in the film.
0: In terms of my favourite single sequence, I've got to go with the ending. This is one of the benefits of me getting to go first in these sections is I get the choice pickings of of the MVP and, and the best scene or sequence, and i got to go for the obvious one here. It's the ending. It's the most terrifying part of the movie, that descent into the basement. Mike's not answering anymore. Where's he gone? It's dark. You're just half expecting something to pop out of nowhere. You see him in the corner you see him just long enough for your brain to make the connection back to the Rustin Par thing from earlier on in the movie, then bang, she's knocked out, end of film. Yeah. It's it's keeping with that ambiguity that has made the movie so effective. It's keeping with that simplistic approach that has made the movie so effective. It's genuinely terrifying. I've got to go with that one. How about you guys? How about you, Sean?
3: I think, for me, it's the directors. They've just... They've hit on something really cool and they went out on a limb to make it. They managed to pull off something that hadn't been pulled off before and they've changed cinema because of it. The fact that they created this entire Blair Witch thing out of nowhere, taking inspiration, of course, from the Bell Witch and other urban legends and, as you said, the writings of Irving... They were able to create this whole mythology behind the Blair Witch. The thing about Rustin Parr. All of this really creepy mythology behind it. So I, ha- I think I have to give it to them. And I think my favorite part in the movie is when they're, all, when they're going through the town. Interviewing the people. I really like that because you get that really funny moment with the, with the mother. With a kid. And she's telling them stuff, and the kid is freaking out, and the mother just turns and says, don't worry, I'm just telling a story, it's all fake. She turns to the camera and mouths, it's all real. <laughs> <laughs> and I really, I really dig that, I think that's very fun. And I like seeing Even them... more wonderful is the fact that that's an accident,
0: that that kid just started crying.
3: Yeah, and I love the fact that you're just seeing these people get to know each other, And you get all of these little bits of comedy when they get into the woods where they are just filming a documentary and, you know, getting to know each other. Well, obviously, Josh and Heather already knew each other, but you're getting Mike added to their dynamic. You get that line where where Heather says, you know, I usually don't go out into the woods with two gentlemen. And you get all of their back and forth and it's really fun until it's not. Not you, Holly
2: I gotta give credit to Lionsgate. This was a bold move, mm. and you know this could have just sat in a room somewhere without ever being seen without ever changing the landscape as much as it did, and it was really it was a really bold move to distribute something that looks the way it does to distribute something. Where you're gonna say that the actors are actually dead.
0: Yeah, you're 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 right. We didn't actually discuss that, like I mean there had been found footage movies before, like Cannibal Holocaust, but none that have that had actually gotten like theatrical releases by a major studio all over the world. Like there mm, were reports yeah. of of people being so unused to seeing that kind of footage that they were throwing up in the theatres because of the way the camera was moving. It had never been done before. you're right, it was a huge risk.
2: It's bold. And the fact that they threw so much into the marketing of it to get it seen. They clearly believed in the project. Yeah, They believed it in enough to not only put something so non-traditional into cinemas, but also start one of the first viral ad campaigns. Yeah. Create one of the first ARGs, Alternate Reality Games.
3: One of the first ARGs that was connected to
0: a product.
2: Yeah. It's just so...
0: I it was augmented reality games.
2: Well, it's all the same thing, really. And it's just really bold call. Yeah, the
3: mockumentary thing is really neat as well. Like, we were watching the VHS scan of, like, the Sticks and Stones documentary, and it starts with a whole a, a Blockbuster exclusive, and it came up with the Blockbuster symbol and everything, and we just had to have a minute of silence
0: for Blockbuster.
2: Yeah. Just pay our respects. There is yeah. still
0: one blockbuster in the world.
2: I know. I know. My favourite scene would have to be when they get back to the log mm. after travelling south all day. It's the clearest example that not only time, but space yeah, is against them.
3: Oh, d- y- did you notice how we watched it with subtitles on and it said... And you hear either Mike or Josh s- scream, you God.
1: Mm.
3: For years, people were like, oh, he's saying Log. <laughs> so, apparently, that's become one of those cult fan things of people well, screaming, works... F-U, Log.
2: It works equally. Yeah. But it's such a great scene because it's the thing that works as the clincher. Yeah. Before the point, they were like, okay, we can get out of here. Mm. If we just follow the river, if we just keep moving in one direction long enough, we're either gonna get out of here or find a mountain range or some shit. Yeah. We will find something different than just trees. And then they see the look again. That's when they know it's over. Really. There is no hope. It's an
3: indisputable have them. thing.
2: Yeah. It's that scene was effective to me because Imagine, just imagine how terrifying that would be, like if you were in the woods, yeah, and it's just a great moment, because each of them break each character breaks down in their own way. We get Heather desperately trying to deny it out of existence. We get Josh, I think it was, resort to anger, and Mike just doesn't speak. It's just great. I've, that's a great part of it. So, Lawson, what have we got next well, week? Well,
0: next week we will be going in a different direction once again. We will be doing an episode next week on Fight Club. If anyone would like to watch along at home, you can find it available for streaming on Amazon Prime Video if you have a subscription. You can also rent or purchase the film on the Fetch, Apple, Amazon, and YouTube stores. So tune in next week, and, and that is what we will be covering and the... Hang on, what's... There's something in my window, there's a scratch seen? or something, How? Oh my god, what the fuck is I'm that? What? That
1: what the fuck is that?
3: Um, so the call cut out. Uh, well, I haven't been able to find Harley, and I haven't been able to contact Lawson, so... I guess I'll finish the episode off. You can follow us on Twitter at onthebrightside1. You can also follow Lawson, I guess, at his blog Exit Through the Candy Counter. You can follow Harley and I, if he ever comes back, on at onthebrightside. You'll find the links below in the description of whatever podcast app of choice you can find. Uh, the comments section on the podcast apps are very helpful for getting us out there, because they help re- they help show audience retention, and it helps support the algorithm. Uh, yeah, um, they, I guess, were Harley and Lawson, and I hope I'll continue to be jean Lewis. Wait, what the-